0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. In a culture growing in hostility, it's clear how far we are from what the kingdom of God should look like. As followers of Christ, it can be difficult to stand firm in what we are taught and what we believe in. It's easy to let idols slip into our lives without us even realizing it, especially when the world we live in puts people on a pedestal. In our new series, Daniel, The Clash of Cultures, we'll be looking at the life of Daniel and how even then Daniel had to navigate a culture who opposed God. We'll discover how we can put our trust in God regardless of our circumstances and how God is sovereign overall. Join us this new year as we study the life of Daniel and learn how to apply the truths inside this book to our own lives.
1: Well, should the forces of evil be mocked? Let me, let me put it more directly. Should we laugh at and jeer and mock the devil? Now, that might sound a little bit wild uh, for us today. And, and if we think about how the scripture depicts the devil, how it talks about who he is, that, that might not really sound like a wise course of action. Uh, for us to take. I mean, think about how the Scripture depicts the devil. He is talked about in 1 Peter 5, as he's uh, described as a prowling, roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The book of Revelation depicts the devil as the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the deceiver of the whole world, and says that he stands before God, day and night, accusing the saints, accusing the church. Now, just in that depiction of him, those, those statements about the devil and his nature, I, I don't think, I mean, if it was me, if anything, I'd want to stand clear of him. Like I, I don't want to say too much negative about him, let alone mock or jeer at him, because I wouldn't want to paint a bullseye on my back for his wrath and terror. But I think that there is a place for us as Christians, and a need for us as followers of Jesus Christ, to put Satan back in his place. At the beginning of C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, in which he writes a parody uh, pretending to be one of the demons of hell, uh, and yet through the, the other side of it, seeing how we should live as Christians. In that book, The Screwtape Letters, he starts that book with two quotations from prominent people in the past. One of them was by Martin Luther. Luther said, the best way to drive out the devil, if he will not yield to the text of Scripture, is to jeer and to flout him, for he cannot bear scorn. Luther's preferred way of mocking the devil was to mock him, scorn him. The, the second statement by Thomas More, More said, the devil, that proud spirit, cannot endure to be mocked. He's so proud, he's so arrogant, that for anyone to mock him is an insult. And so I think there's a definite point that you and I as Christians should not shudder too much at our great foe. We shouldn't tremble too much. And the reason for that is because for Satan, the writing is on the wall. His future fate is sure and fixed. And because of that, because he is defeated, his kingdom overthrown, because he is a clown, we need not have fear of him if we are in Christ Jesus. You and I can scoff at and even mock our adversary because Christ is victorious. Now, Daniel chapter 5 is a story, and it's As a story told in the the language of satire, It's, it's what I'll call a biblical satire. Its intended point for us as a story here, and really for Daniel's first hearers, was for them to hear how God stands victorious above any and all who raise themselves up against Him. The kings and ungodly kingdoms of this world may think they have power. They may act in domineering ways and think that they control the world and the universe and that everything happens at their whim. But the truth is, for the enemies of God, the writing is on the wall. God will make them look absolutely foolish. This story is a story of, or it's a bit of holy mockery. The psalmist in Psalm 2 asks the question, why do the nations rage? Why do the kings and kingdoms of this world pit themselves up against God and his anointed? And as the psalmist asks that question, he then turns and he he provides an answer. God in heaven, he sits on his throne and he laughs at them. He scoffs the kings and kingdoms of this world who rage against them. God mocks his adversaries. He mocks the devil. Why does he do that? Because the writing is on the wall. The writing is on the wall for Satan. The writing is on the wall for the ungodly kingdoms and kings of this world. And this passage, this holy bit of mockery in Daniel 5, I believe presents us some reasons why the writing is on the wall. My hope for you this morning as we we look at this chapter is to leave here today strengthened and encouraged that Christ is the king, that his victory has been won, and you need not fear any forces of evil, you need not fear the shifting change of culture that seems to get darker and darker, you need not fear the kings and kingdoms of this world, you need not fear Satan himself, because God is the king, he is the victorious one. And so I want you to see this morning a God who laughs at the kings of this world who raise themselves up against him because of how, why they do. And I'll show you these three reasons. First of all, God, God mocks. He laughs at the kings and kingdoms of this world. He mocks at Satan because Satan blasphemes the most high God. The kings and kingdoms of this world blaspheme the most high God. Now in this chapter, we're, we're met with a king and a kingdom in this chapter, Belshazzar is the enemy of God, and he's the enemy of God's people. Belshazzar is a clown ruler. He is an absolute goofball. Now, now, we don't know, as we sit here, as we've been reading through Daniel, Belshazzar, this is the first time we've read his name, so we don't know where, he is, where he's come from, who he is. short A little bit of history here is that Belshazzar was one of the grandchildren of Nebuchadnezzar. He was a king down the line from him, and he really wasn't even king himself of Babylon. His father was king, and his father was dispatched away uh, on business, if it were, ruling somewhere else. And so Belshazzar stood as the co-regent. He was kind of like the subordinate king over Babylon at this time. And we meet Belshazzar, and like I said, he's he's just a clown. The story pokes holes at his life and his rulership. We've got Belshazzar, and he thinks he's a big deal. Like he, he to describe a head coach that, uh, you know, is down in Ohio, he th- was born on third base, pretty much. He thinks he's it, right? And because he thinks he's it, he, destri- he decides to have a great party for himself. So verse 1 says that he made a great feast for thousands of his lords, and he drank wine in front of the thousands. He just has this big, drunken feast and party. The problem is there's a great threat outside his walls. The Persians and the Medes are right outside the city gates, ready to sack the city. And he thinks, my kingdom is unending. My reign is superior. They aren't going to be able to do a thing against us. The walls of our city are so great. This is Babylon, the best. And so he's throwing this great feast, great party, lots of wine flowing everywhere, and Belshazzar gets it in his mind. He's the best. His ego and pride are just inflatable. He's, he's invincible. He's untouchable. And so he decides, you know what? I'm so great, I want to I just flaunt it all. I want everybody to see how great I am. And so he begins to think, I'm going to make a mockery of God. Verse 2 says that when he tasted the wine, so the drinks are flowing, everything great is happening. And he says, you know what? Bring in the... the the goblets, bring in the cups of gold and silver that my father Nebuchadnezzar took from Jerusalem, from that temple, and bring it in here. Let's, let's get the vessels used for worship in the temple of the Jews and use those as, as party cups, as solo cups for our party. Like, like That's how low they are. These holy things in his mind were nothing because he thought he had conquered. He thought he was the victorious one. So someone goes and, and gets the cups, they get the goblets, they bring them in, they brought in the golden vessels, taken out of the temple, verse 3, and they're filled up with wine. The kings and his lords, his wives, his concubines, everybody drank from them. And they not only drank from them, they then began to praise their gods, the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, and worship them. What, what Belshazzar is doing here is saying, I'm the greatest the God of the Jews, he's nothing. We defeated him. I mean, he's, just, he's, he's empty, and so we are the superior ones. The Jewish people are nothing. We are ultimate. We are great. But friends here know that God is not mocked. They try and make a mockery of God and his people, but God will not be mocked. As they're partying, partying, as they're having this feast and this this drunken orgy, immediately it says in verse 5, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw it as he wrote. So just imagine this, and this is why it's depicted so clearly in this way. You might think, well, maybe he's just drunk out of his mind. He He just can't even see straight. So maybe he imagined this. But the writer wants us to get that Belshazzar saw this very clearly. He was absolutely in his right mind, and this this hand comes and begins to write on the wall where the light had been illuminated there, writing out very clearly a message for the king. And the king saw it. What happens when this proud, arrogant, self-consumed king sees the writing on the wall? Well, I've sought for delicate words to say here to describe what happens, but... You got to remember, I used to be a youth pastor, and so the juvenile humor of this passage—it just shows up. The mockery is here. Look with me at verse six. Okay, it says, "The king's color changed; his thoughts alarmed him; his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together." And you read that and you go, "Okay," he just kind of collapsed on the floor in terror and agony. The Aramaic under this is way more graphic. Um, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible translation. I think it does a little bit better of a job here. It says, his face turned pale. His thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself. His knees knocked together. Guys, frankly, the king pooped his pants. (laughs) And I'm glad you're laughing because it's funny. This is holy mockery. This proud, arrogant, I'm the greatest king, soils himself. at The handwriting on a wall. And we laugh at that. Daniel's first hearers would have laughed at that as well because Belshazzar is a joke. It's a joke. So what does he do? This king does what every idiot who poops his pants in fear does, right? He tries to save face. So he gets the Babylonian wise men in to help him with this problem. We remember these guys, right? The Babylonian wise men, they are so great at at interpreting dreams and signs. Like, no, not at all. These guys have a worse record than the Detroit Pistons. And my apologies to the Detroit Pistons for even comparing them. They're incompetent clowns as well. Belshazzar, he calls him in, he makes this boastful proclamation. Whoever interprets this writing on the wall and gets it figured out, I'll give him clothes of purple, royal royal clothes, he'll get a chain of gold, and he'll be the third in the kingdom, right? I'll just establish him up there. And not a one of them can. Every one of them strike out. Like, they have nothing for the king. Again, it's a mockery of Babylon and its power and its kings and its arrogance. They've got no answers against God. Verse 8, all the kings and wise men came in. They couldn't read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. And then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed. You can assume the rest and, and his lords were perplexed. I mean, you can't help laugh at this guy. Who can figure out what this spooky and mysterious statement that has been written on the wall is? Here's the point. God is making this king look absolutely foolish because he's blasphemed the Most High God. Blasphemy is the act of insulting or showing contempt or lack of reference for God. This is Belshazzar's total game. He's defiled the holy things of God, and so God makes him defile his pants. Belshazzar fails to acknowledge the Most High, and so the Most High humiliates him. He looks to his own wisdom, and yet his wise men are utter fools. What a joke! We can laugh at the folly of this king. But it points us to the reality that everyone who raises themselves up against God in their own blasphemy will be laughed at as well, because God will not be mocked. He gets the final word. Now here's where this begins to encourage us as Christians. There are those in this world who blaspheme the Most Holy God. They they mock and revile and insult and seek to humiliate God and His people. And we get discouraged because it often seems like they win. Right? It feels like in many ways the culture wars are not going our way, but the darkness is winning. It's overcoming the light. And and we, we wonder: will there be victory? We don't have a culture that is becoming more sacred that's worshiping and reverencing God. We have a culture that's becoming more secular and brash in blaspheming God. And those who love and revere the name of Christ are troubled. We're concerned. And we ask, will God win? Friends, the answer is absolutely. If you are in Christ, you have nothing to fear of those who blaspheme the Most High. God will do to them what he has done to every king and kingdom that mocks him. You don't need to fear Satan and his blasphemy against God. God will crush Satan underfoot. How do we know this? Because the writing is on the wall. It's clearly there. God will not be mocked. He will not be mocked. and That's a point for us to consider our own lives as well. Are we the ones trying to mock God? This is a warning for us, as much as it is a mockery, a point of mockery towards Satan. Are we living in blasphemy? Are we dishonoring the Lord? Are we turning what is His and holy and good into what is common? Are we are we taking the secular and turning it sacred? God will crush Satan underfoot because He blasphemes the Most High. For Satan, the writing is on the wall. We can mock him. But secondly, for Satan, the writing is on the wall and the forces of evil because they repeat past sins. There's a perpetual cycle of sin. that There's, there's no learning from it. There's no improvement. There's no, no getting beyond it. So look with me at Belshazzar. I mean, he's just, if anybody should have learned the stories of the past and, and moved from them, and it should have been him, but he, he can't, he won't. He continues to repeat past sin. He has no one to interpret this writing on the wall to him. And then in verse 10, this, this person just appears, and I think it's another bit of mockery. He can't get the answer from his wise men, but there's a woman in his kingdom, the queen or the queen mother. She shows up. She's heard that the king has soiled his pants. They can't figure it out. And so she comes in and she declares, "O oh, king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or change your color There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, he made things known. He made dreams known. Verse 12, he was able to solve problems and help was found in this Daniel. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. So she says, don't worry about it. We've got to figure it out. I mean, catch the satire and the irony here. The king who just blasphemed God, the God of Judah, now has to have a Jewish man come in and interpret the very sign that gives him trouble. His king's pride is so great. He's not gonna have a Jewish man upstage him at all. So he begins to try and put Daniel in play in his place. Daniel comes in, verse 13, he's brought before the king. And the king doesn't say, Oh, you're Daniel, the one who assisted my father Nebuchadnezzar, the one who has had great and high power, the one who has ruled with wisdom in this kingdom. No, he belittles Daniel right to his face. Oh, you're Daniel, right? One of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. He's like, You're a conquered people. You're a slave. You're nobody. Who do you think you are? arrogance. It's pride. And so he just throws it out there. I don't think he believes that Daniel can answer this. He's going to try and figure it out as a note on his own, maybe. But he says, you know what? If you can figure it out, we'll give you the purple robe. We'll throw in the gold chain. And yes, you'll be third ruler uh, in the whole kingdom. You know, I'll give you the rewards. I promised my guys earlier. But he doesn't believe it. He's the king of Babylon. Daniel is a nobody. I love Daniel's response. He is not impressed with this king at all. He doesn't, nobody should be actually. He's like, I'll do this one for free, okay? There's no, you don't need to give me anything. I will tell you what the writing on the wall says because it's your doom. I'll do this one for free. And so Daniel begins to give a history lesson. Verse 18, he says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. You're like, remember history? History. Remember your father, Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king of Babylon? Yeah, God put him there. God gave him greatness. God gave him glory. The Most High God gave him majesty. And and because the Most High gave him all of that, He was was able to reign and rule over all peoples, nations, languages. They all trembled and feared before him. And whoever he would, he would kill. And whoever he would, he kept alive. And whoever he would, he raised up. And whoever he would, he humbled. He's like, Nebuchadnezzar had ultimate power because God put him there. God gave him that. He set up Nebuchadnezzar above all peoples and places. And yet, Daniel says, remember the story, and this is what we heard in Daniel 4 last week. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar got real proud and arrogant. He lifted his heart up against God, verse 20. His heart was lifted up. His spirit was hardened. He dealt proudly, and he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory taken from him. God will not endure the pride of humanity. He humbled him. He made him a fool and a madman until he humbled himself. And so Daniel gets around to the point in verse 22, and he says, And you, his son, Belshazzar, you haven't humbled your heart, though you knew all this. It's like, learn from your past, man. God strikes down the proud. It's the same story, second verse, a little bit louder, and a whole lot worse. And it's frustrating. The king knew, well, the story of his successor, Nebuchadnezzar. He knew what happened when he thought he was superior to God and he persists in his own pride and arrogance against the Lord. And so Daniel says in verse 23, you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which by the way, do not see or hear or know. you are stupid, nothing gods, but the God in whose hand is your breath. Take note of that. The God who gives you your very next breath. And whose are all your ways, you have not honored. You know the saying, history repeats itself? How often have the mistakes and failures of one generation not been listened to and heeded by a subsequent generation? Friends, we're recycling the sins of our fathers and mothers. We're recycling the sin, the original sin of pride and it continues to perpetuate itself one generation after another. Satan traffics in pride. It's his favorite thing. It's the tool by which he used to deceive our first parents, Adam and Eve and they in their pride rebelled against God and lifted themselves up against him and every one of us have been following suit ever since and we have not been learning the lesson God humbles the proud. The writing is on the wall for Satan and his pride. God will not be mocked. The writing is on the wall for all evil forces that persist in sin and repeat their pride. God will not be mocked. The writing is on the wall for all who are arrogant and humble and lift themselves up against God. He will not be mocked. We make a mockery of Satan because he blasphemes the most high, because he continues to repeat and persist in pride. And finally, we mock him because the writing is on the wall for him because of their pride and arrogance, and his pride and arrogance, he's calling down God's judgment on himself. Now here Daniel gets to the interpretation of the story. right? He's just been doing a history lesson at this, up to this point. Belshazzar has mocked God, he's persisted in his arrogance and pride, and so God literally... This is where the phrase comes from, literally puts the writing on the wall. It's like, let me spell it out for you. So Daniel says, and he says, then from God's presence, this God who you have ignored, you have not honored, from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. We get four words here, mene, mene, tekel, and parson. It's actually three words, two of them repeated at the same time. Now, each of these words was uh, built on a wordplay in Aramaic language, and so that's I think how Daniel is able to interpret and understand it. The word "mena" there, he translates and interprets, and he says, "God has numbered the days of your kingdom, and it's over." Right, this great, proud, arrogant king. God says to him twice over, because it's repeated, "Your days are done, man. God's measured out your your days, your kingdom." And it's over. Like the thing ends tonight. It's your last party, bro. And then you're done. You're over. God says it twice over. And then Tekel he says, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Like You're nothing. You're lacking. You think you're something. You think of your, you're of consequence and you're, you're proud and powerful. And guess what? You're empty. found wanting and then the last word Perez your kingdom is divided and it's given to the Medes and the Persians which if you know history that very night the Medes and Persian army were right outside the city of Babylon beginning to do a, a, a undercover work coming in through the city's canals to overthrow Babylon and they did it that very night in fact, that's what verse 30 says. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years older. And Daniel is absolutely right, and he's rewarded for what the king said, or for what he was able to interpret, as the king said he would be rewarded. But the kingdom's over, God's judgment came. That very night, Babylon was sacked, Belshazzar was destroyed. The note here is that God will not be mocked. Belshazzar, you just called down judgment upon yourself. You've lifted yourself up in pride. You thought you were invincible. And so in your pride and in your arrogance, God will strike you down. God will bring an end to your kingdom. And this is the point. This is why we shouldn't tremble at Satan. This is why we shouldn't tremble at the evil forces of this world, the wicked kingdoms and kings. It's because God is sovereign over ungodly kings and kingdoms. He is the one who rules and reigns over all things, friends. Satan believes he's victorious. He believes his rebellion against God is successful. But yet, God has said to him, "Your days are numbered. Your kingdom—it's over." And he thinks he's a big deal. He thinks he's won victory. But God says to him, "No, you're found wanting. You've been weighed out, and you're empty." And Satan thinks that he's all-powerful and he endures, but to him the Lord says, your kingdom is divided, a divided house against itself, cannot stand. It's given away. God's judgment is coming down on him. And the good news for us in this is that where we see rampant evil, where we see pride, and where we see idolatry in this world and blasphemy, we must note that it will not triumph. The wickedness of this world, the evil of this world and of this culture, they are calling down God's judgment upon them. Friends, evil won't have the last word. Satan won't have the last word. God always does. Uh, And I wonder if you tremble at the, the power of evil and ungodliness in this world. Does the thought of Satan make you quake in your boots? Friends, he's a clown. He's like a dog on a chain, barking and barking, but he has no bite. He will be brought low. And, and the wickedness of this world, it, it makes us tremble for sure. We see a culture that, that is bending against the humble Christian, threatening to put out the light of the gospel. And we can think inside, well, maybe it's time for us to go to war, but, but friends, we must remember the kings and kingdoms of this world will not stand. They will not endure. Christ endures. He will stand. Martin Luther, once again, reflected on the reality of the church and the devil in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I love this hymn because it reminds me of the truth of God and the truth about Satan. The first verse says, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood, Of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. He's armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. But the third verse of that song tells us of God's victory. Luther calls us to sing and says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word, written on the wall against Satan, was Jesus's word on the cross it is finished. Because there he went. For our sin, there he went for our rebellion. There he went for our pride and suffered and died in our place to forgive us and to secure victory for himself and for all who follow him. The victory of God is sure and it has been accomplished in Christ. Jesus came and defied Satan's temptations. He said, it is finished. And he gave himself for us. He lives sinlessly He mocked the devil by living the sinless life we couldn't endure. He endured the devil's suffering. He stood in our place and he died in shame and agony for you and for me. And on the third day, he put Satan underfoot, trampling him in vindication and glory as he was raised from the grave to the glory of his father. And today, Jesus is King of kings and Lord over all lords. No one will defeat him. No one will stand above him. Satan is defeated. Friends, the writing is on the wall against the kings of this world, against our great enemy. Jesus is victorious. So you need not tremble for him. You need not walk through this world although it seems like it's getting darker and darker with fear and rage. Look to Christ who is victorious. See the king who is written on that wall, his victory who is sovereign over all things, over all kings and kingdoms. And be encouraged. Walk in faith with him because he has the ultimate victory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reality of your kingdom, the reality of your victory, your superiority, your greatness. Lord, we see the kings and kingdoms of this world. We see our enemy, Satan, raging against you. They're crying out in rebellion against you and your your son, the Lord Jesus. But you, Lord, sit in heaven as king of kings and you laugh. You laugh at these rulers and kings and kingdoms. You laugh at our pride. You will not be mocked. So Father, give us that humble encouragement and faith in your victory. Give us grace as we trust you. And may we see you reign and rule over all things forever and ever. Amen.
0: Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family.